I noticed Wednesday evening that we must have had the bulk or most of the congregation at least that were uh, under the uh, teaching that we brought forth at that time. And uh, we concluded it by considering somewhat the responsibility that we have as the salt of the earth and as the light of the world. Well, I want to major upon that this morning, drawn from that. And I'm going to turn you to two familiar passages that we'll be reading. First, you'll find one in Luke chapter 14, in the 14th chapter, the gospel, according to Luke. And we'll read in chapter 14, beginning at verse 28 through the end of the chapter. The Lord Jesus Christ declares, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to war to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth ambassadors and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill. But men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now I want to read another very familiar passage. Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, we'll read through verse 16. And here we read, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, 
for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on an hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And he giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Of course, we have in the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 here what we could consider the comprehensive revealing of the characteristics that should belong to one who is truly a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who is under the direction, the enablement, and the control of God's Holy Spirit. And so, very similar to what's called the fruit of the Spirit in the epistle to the Galatians. But what the Lord Jesus shows about his true followers, those who truly know him, is that they are distinct in their lives, in their character, in the way they live from the world. They're different from the world. We're reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians when he says, Who maketh thee to differ? It's God who does that, who works in his own. That's as much a sovereign work of God as salvation. And so, as a result of this difference, and because the believer's life is so different, and it, being different comes into conflict with the world in sin, out of which he or she has been called, it will bring reproach. It will bring measures of suffering from a world that loves sin and hates the right ways of God. Of course, the Lord made that clear in verses 10 through 12 when he says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice ye. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. The Lord has shown what should constitute and what is true Christian character in the Beatitudes. Now he declares the effect of his followers upon the world that should be and as God makes use of his truly redeemed children in this world. When he says in verse 13, ye are, ye are the salt of the earth. When he says in verse 14, ye are the light of the world. And that's no little thing. That's a huge thing that the Lord here is teaching. What is so incredibly important shown so unmistakably by this responsibility to be the salt of the earth is 
that it's not the Lord's will that we retire from the world and hide in some way from it, or that we simply come up with our own communities that are separate and distinct from men. The only way salt preserves meat, the only way it keeps it from rotting, is to be rubbed into it. That salt has to be rubbed into the meat. It's still distinct from the meat. And it's rubbed into the meat. It was not the Lord's will to take his redeemed and saved ones out of the world or to call them into separated societies within the world, but rather to live a new life separated unto him in the midst of a world that's filled with sin. You remember his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 and verses 14 through 17. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The main thought here is in the comparison of salt to the believer, to the one who truly knows the Lord Jesus Christ, to the one who, like Paul, can say, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. This salt is likened to one who lives godly in Christ Jesus. Different from the world, of sin and becoming in the world a preservative element that is to retard the sinful corruption of the world. Once Christianity, so-called, loses that, it's lost its complete influence in the world. It becomes good for nothing. That's a solemn thing the Lord here was teaching. It's easy to see in Scripture when we look into the Word of God that final judgment will not come to this world until God removes His people, until they're safe and secure. That becomes pretty clear in Scripture. Noah, for instance, and his family had to be safely in the ark before those massive floodwaters covered every mountain on the face of the earth and killed everything that had breath otherwise. Lot had to be out of Sodom. God detests and hates and abominates the sin of sodomy. And Lot had to be out of Sodom before the fire of God's eternal wrath fell upon those ancient cities. The Lord instructed his own to get out of Jerusalem before the judgment of the greatest tribulation they would experience would come in 70 A.D., and considering this, as long as God has a real people, a true people in the world, there is more divine mercy that he is showing to this world than the world could comprehend. 
You remember Abraham's intercession for Sodom? Got down to what? Ten? There weren't ten. Had there been ten, God said he would have kept that city intact. He would not have judged it with fire and brimstone from heaven. But as soon as Lot and his family were out of Sodom, the judgment, of course, came. Our text, particularly in uh, Matthew, is not talking about people being brought out of the world in order for judgment to come for sin. Rather, they are to be the preservative of the otherwise total moral decay that would come. That's a big thing to say. That's a huge thing to say. And you, you are individually, you who believe in, who trust Christ with your soul, who desire to be his and his only, to live unto him and for his glory, you who are saved by God's grace, wherever God places you, you're to have such an impact upon those who are around you by a godly life and testimony so as to influence for good what would otherwise deteriorate unto utter corruption. That's a lot to say. We'll proceed to consider some of these things that the world tends to deterioration, to deteriorate, that it moves constantly in the direction of moral corruption. That's the unmistakable implication of these illuminating words of our blessed Savior. Salt here. Salt here as compared to the believer and follower of Christ is obviously being used in the sense of a preservative, an agent to stem and retard the world that is otherwise rapidly decaying and heading toward perishing. The world has in it that which propels it to a condition of rotting, of deterioration, that of the individual and that of society and social order. And it has in itself nothing. The world has in itself nothing that can check and change that tendency. When the Lord talks about his own in the world as being the salt of the earth, being here those who are uh, of the world, those that the believer is to be the salt concerning. We understand the world, of course, as non-Christian mankind, unbelievers. And so when he says, ye are the salt 
of the earth. By implication, this means you're the only salt of the earth. You, ye, you only. You who are indeed a follower of Christ. You only are the salt of the earth. This means that the true believer who lives out his or her life so in true consecration to Christ will impact the conduct of others and is an agent to preserve the world from total moral decay. It's a huge thing, the Lord here is teaching. What the world will think will solve its problems, be they educators or politicians or anybody else, whoever they are, liberal, conservative, libertarian, any of them, what the world thinks will solve its problems never does, ever. In the late 19th century, so-called thinkers, philosophers, politicians, scientists, poets, educators, thinking the world had finally come to quote the age of reason of the human mind in control, governing all. They confidently expected that then in the 20th century that would bring in, quote, the golden age. This was based upon the pseudo-false theory of evolution. And not only biological evolution, but also philosophical evolution. Education was to be the great savior of the world. Education was to do the trick. Take care of the problems in the world. It would be the solver of all the problems. Only it was not the education we learned from the scriptures that begins with the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Without that, there is no true knowledge, no true wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then into this day, into the 21st century, the human mind has been substituted for the word of God. The human mind itself. The Holy Scriptures. In the 20th century, or really in the late 19th century, began to be attacked like never before. Infiltrating not only colleges, universities, and public schools, it infiltrated theological institutions, seminaries, churches then. Diminishing in teaching 
the supreme and full authority of Scripture, substituting the human mind for it. In churches, putting the human mind above divine revelation, God's infallible word. Needless to say, this humanistic philosophy continues to this day. And in spite of the opposite taking place in the 20th century and now into the 21st, with the decline of morals, with incredible things we hear about. My wife just read, told me this morning, that in some universities and colleges now, if someone who is a man says that he's a woman, then he can be put into a, a room, a college room, dorm room, with a woman. It's incredible where we've come. It gets worse, not better. There are divisions in the world like we've never seen. I don't know that we comprehend the danger that's on our doorsteps right now. There's greater hatred among men than I've ever witnessed. There's always been that. But it seems to be increased in our day. The desire to kill those that simply disagree sometimes politically. It's incredible where we are. The increase of wars will come. There's the threat Still a nuclear annihilation. And even the educational system from kindergarten through university is promoting the vilest sins imaginable as acceptable lifestyles. Removing the sensitivities that even natural men had. Averse to these perversions. This tendency has never been checked except this tendency has never been checked except where the true biblical Christianity biblical Christianity not simply professing Christianity this tendency has been checked only where true biblical Christianity has had times of awakening majorly twice in the history of our nation. And Christian morals become established as the norm among unbelievers. I was among the first batch of what's called baby boomers. You too. <laughs> we were in the first batch of baby boomers. I can remember that in the 50s, in the 50s, uh, Ozzie and Harriet days, morals, even among those who were not consecrated to Christ and didn't believe, were still recognized. There was still the influence of the gospel that was in this nation even among 
unbelievers. So here we have in our passage an amazing thing. He who was looked upon as a Galilean peasant from a poor family. Addresses his followers. And to his followers he says, Ye are the light of the world. Ye are the salt of the earth. You can mark it down. Do it ever how you like, historically. You can look east, west, north, south. You can try every other means to try and check a corrupting society. You can cause every other influence known to man and use it. And nothing at all, and not all combined, will preserve the world from total spiritual decay. It will increase. The answer is not politically. These few powerful words of our Lord, none ever speaking like him. Never man spake like this man as his enemies had to declare. He declares that the poor in spirit, those who know they're empty by nature and have nothing, and stand in need of everything from God and His wondrous grace. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who mourn over sin, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the meek, the merciful, peacemakers, those who reflect the character of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world, ye are the salt of the earth. What powerful words. There is an element in the world. The one element. The one element. That brings us decay. And will eventually lead to its destruction. And that destruction can only be stayed if there is another element that retards its corruption. Not the lack of education or the need for more scientific knowledge, nor the attempt to bring harmony among men by the anything goes doctrine. The attitude of non-discrimination. Accept everybody, no matter who they are, what kind of lifestyle they live. Be tolerant of the vilest of sins. There's only one element for which this world shall eventually perish. It's sin against its creator. 
defiance of the living God. When sin entered into this world, when it began, its penetrating influence throughout the world, when man turned from his creator to himself as his God, this corruption became so massive that it caused God to repent that he'd made it. and brought a flood of waters to destroy the earth. Is God a God of judgment? Yes, he is. Let the pseudoscientists do what they will with evolution. There's still the marks of that flood all over this world. God destroyed everything that breathed, except for Noah and his families. He brought a flood of waters to destroy the earth. Do men say be tolerant of the sin of sodomy? Look at Sodom. You want to see how God feels about it? I don't even know if I even use that word. He sent fire from heaven and destroyed those cities. And according to the book of Job, now they are suffering eternal fire. They left off restraint and engaged in the vilest of sins. The very city where God had his name, his temple, his worship. He sent an army to destroy it when they turned from it. Do you think this nation will be spared without a work of God's grace in bringing massive revival and awakening? As one writer put it, the world's bad, sinful and evil, and any optimism with regard to it is not only thoroughly unscriptural, but has actually been falsified by history itself. And the answer is not a professing Christianity that's lost its savor because instead of infiltrating the world by being unspotted from it, living a consecrated life unto Christ, it has been so infiltrated by the world and its ways that it's become like it. So as to lose its savor and become good for nothing. Then consider... Consider that the only hope, take note, the only hope for preserving society from total corruption lies with you. 
Isn't that a solemn thing to think about? What a solemn thing. It lies with you. If you are so consecrated to Christ, that's a good word. You belong to him, no longer yourself. As to truly live a life of godliness in this world. This sounds incredible. And it's hard to take in. When everything we see seems to be moving in the direction of immorality, drinking, drugs, vice, illicit sex, perverted sex, violence, pleasure-seeking, yet history verifies that when Christians simply live like Christians, Oh, take note. That's all they do. They live like Christians. <laughs> Those who profess and confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God and their Savior. When they live unto Him and they live like Christians. Simply. Living godly lives in obedience to Christ in closest contact with the world and yet unspotted from its ways. It has great impact. Greater impact than sometimes is really known. Had not true biblical Christianity been in the world, had it not been the influence and the formation of our very nation, we would not have a nation. We would not have the enjoyed freedoms we have. Freedom from oppression. We would have been dominated and enslaved by tyranny. That could happen yet. And if we have eyes to see it, It is no coincidence that the downward, rotting, corrupting influence is now taking place and ever-gaining strength is coming at the very same time that professing Christianity is losing its influence. Put the two together. The gospel the wondrous saving gospel of the Son of God. The revelation of God in the gospel and his salvation. The gospel becomes a mockery to the world when those who profess to believe do not live what they profess to believe, but rather they're controlled by the ways of the world. This is when the salt loses its savor, as the Lord warned. Meaning it becomes tasteless. 
insipid. And do notice something. The order that the Lord gives forth is first to become salt. Ye are the salt of the earth. Influencing others by a godly life. Let men mock you. Let them call you a goody two-shoes. Let them mock you because you always wanted to go to church and hear the word of God preached. Let them despise you because you won't take part in their dirty jokes. You don't like the things they like. You're to be salt before you become light. Then having a good reason to give forth the gospel in testimony. Salt, then light. To the Philippians, the apostle writes in Philippians 2, verses 14 through 16, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. To Timothy, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, the second chapter, verse 19, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Living godly in Christ Jesus. Consider the Lord's words here. Consider them as particularly applied to you. I've been in the ministry long enough to know that when some particularly convicting truth comes forth from the pulpit, it's always easy to say, them, that person. I've even watched it. <laughs> I've even seen it. So be careful. <laughs> I see what you do. But... but Things have to come down to me. It's me. It's me. You know, you remember those apostles of our Lord? And the Lord said, one of you is going to betray me. Eleven of them, immediately. What they say? Lord, is it I? The one who was guilty, finally, shamed, came along and said the same thing. Maybe it's not them. Maybe it's me who needs to hear. Maybe it's me who stands in need. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm not living before this world as I should. They can hear about all the things I like in the world. I don't know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, that he is my joy.
But the life that he's given me is far greater than anything in this world. That his word, not the TV, not the movie, not the computer. His word is a delight to my soul. Knowing him. Walking with him. Communing with the son of the living God. There is nothing greater. Ye are the light of the world. Ye are the salt of the earth. You might say, I'm only little old me. <laughs> Just little old me, one person. What difference can I make? How can I make a difference? People don't look much at me. Well, you'd be surprised. You are responsible where you are, where God has providentially placed you, in your family, your workplace, among your peers, institutions, organizations. That's where you to live as a Christian is supposed to live. It has rightly been said, we shall never be the light of the world except on condition of being the salt of the earth. You have to play the humble, inconspicuous, silent part of checking corruption by a pure example before you can aspire to play the other part of raying out light into the darkness and so drawing men to Christ himself. Unless those who profess to believe on Christ resist the influence of the world separating from its ungodly talk and activities even while in close contact with it except that be done a mockery is made of this text The question, the question you must ask of yourself, the question we must all ask of ourselves, am I being salt? By so living in communion with Christ as to become more like him. Or am I becoming spiritually tasteless to the world by its influences and charms and pleasures? It's a serious matter. And you and I aren't exempt from being influenced in the wrong ways 
having our desires in the wrong place. It's not, or it is, is it not, a solemn thought that either you will salt the world by a godly life lived unto Christ in truth, lived out in the world. Either you will live unto Christ, godly in Him, and be the salt of the earth in the world, or the world will rot you. Something to think about, isn't it? I fear there can be those who at one time were fervent in their devotion to Christ. He's first preeminent. The things of Him are the essential, important things. First, above everything, what belongs to my Lord, and I belong to Him. Desiring Him, desiring to walk with Him, communing with Him, communing with his people, loving the ministry of the word of God so much that even sacrificial means to be under it would be used. At times, fervent devotion to Christ. Determined that nothing would take precedence over communion with him and obedience by faith to him. Little by little, other things can come and take what should belong only to him. Other things can come and take the time that should be given to him. Excuses can come. Why not to engage in seeking him? Because the heart is being turned. That's a solemn thing. It's a solemn thing. There was a time when the wonder of God's salvation was uppermost. The love that redeems from sin. Realizing the price of redemption, what it cost God to save you and me. It cost him his son. It cost the son of God his life. And the greatest suffering any ever underwent. I've tried to think about that at times. I can't get but so far. I think about sometimes, you know, death. Death. I can remember when I was in the Army. And we were on nine-month alert. Had a unit like ours been destroyed in Vietnam? Guess who next would have been? We would have gone. I can remember... Lying in my bunk at night. I even I had a private room. I was the floor commander. So I had my own private room, private bathroom and everything. So, but I can remember on that bunk at night. Wondering what it would be like for a bullet going through my chest. Well, that would be quick and merciful compared to what the Lord suffered. Sometimes the fear of death is a good thing. 
when it brings us to consider our eternal estate. But what it cost the Lord, I think of Gethsemane. I think of the weight that must have been upon my Savior, my Lord, in Gethsemane, that he sweated blood. So much was the pressure through the capillaries of his body. And yet he just said to his apostles, Arise, let us go hence. He had said, For this cause came I into the world. I can't imagine what it must have been like for those Roman nails to go through his hands, feet. You know, that Roman nail, it wasn't like a ten-penny nail or something that we get at the store. It looked more like a railroad spike. Matter of fact, I have a replica of it somewhere at home of what those looked like. I can't imagine the one who from eternity had only the sweetest communion with the Father who loved the Father above all, who was completely taken up with the love and communion and sweetness of his Father's love. I can't begin to imagine the awful suffering of the soul that cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he did it for me. He did it for you. Who believe? What love? What incredible love. He takes my place. He takes your place. He takes the death we deserve. He experiences the wrath of God that we should have experienced in eternity in hell on the cross. His word to us is simply, come. Take freely. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. To know that love, to embrace that love, we love him because he first loved us all you have to do for the salt to lose its savor leave off communion with Christ leave off seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness leave off the things you sought so fervently in time past that's all you got to do let the world with its movies and shows and vileness let that take your heart. That's all it requires. Be like this day. It's incredible. It's hard to get a pen people's attention because they can't get the phone out of their face.
Just neglect the ministry of the word. Allow constant, private, daily devotion, reading, meditating in the word of God, private, prayer, seeking the face of the Lord, just let it go. That's all it requires. Let it be crowded out by other things. That's all it takes. The message is meant to be solemn. May this not be the case with you. May it not be the case with you. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Love the Lord. Make Him your desired portion. Now what can you get in the world? The psalmist said, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. You might not live to get any inheritance in this world. But if the Lord your portion, how blessed you are. Then and only by this will you be the salt of the earth and be ready to be to the world the light that shines forth the light of life into its darkness of spiritual death. Here again. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you give your bodies as a living sacrifice holy acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service and be not conformed to this world but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's the number of the hymn we want to sing? Are you, what was the number? 492. 492. 492.